I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 7th, 2023. Coming up, what's in a name? We talk with Boulder naturalist Steve Jones about the movement to stop naming birds after people. In the uh, Arapaho Dictionary, the uh, hawk that is still called a Swainson's hawk. That's named after yes. Swainson. I can't say it in Arapaho, but it translates as hawk ghost because it's so white when it's flying in the dark. So that may be a candidate name for this hawk, hawk ghost. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. And for that, here's Beth Bennett. Birds can fly because their outer layer of feathers overlaps like shingles on a roof, forming a light and solid surface that lets them float on moving air. Scientists think that feathers did not initially evolve for flight. That's because the ancestors of today's birds, the so-called feathered dinosaurs, couldn't fly. Feathers probably kept them warm and maybe helped attract mates. But feathers could also have given them a little lift while running, which would have been an advantage in escaping predators or hunting for food. Researchers are unsure how ancient feather-like structures were modified to allow flight. Analyses of fossil feathers showed they had a different form of the protein, called keratin, that makes up modern bird feathers. Perhaps keratin evolved to become stiffer. The new study suggests this conclusion was wrong because chemical changes that occur during fossilization can alter protein structure. The paleontologists who did this study placed modern bird feathers into conditions that mimic fossilization. The keratin in the feathers reformed in a different form. The simplest interpretation is that the distorting effects of fossilization led previous researchers astray in thinking dinosaur and bird feathers were so different. Maybe it's not the structure of the protein itself, but the shape of the feathers that really influenced the evolution of flying in birds. This study was published last month in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. For KG News, How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. In other news, last week a top headline around the world was about how the American Ornithological Society planned to rename birds that are currently named after people. Birds like Wilson's Warbler, Anna's Hummingbird, Townsend's Solitaire. Today, we'll speak with Boulder naturalist Steve Jones about which birds will be getting their names changed and how the new names will be selected, and perhaps more important, why change bird names in the first place. But first, let's listen to what was probably America's most watched announcement about this bird renaming trend. It's from the late-night show host Jimmy Kimmel's monologue last week. Here's an excerpt. Bombshell announcement from the American Ornithological Society. This is the group that's responsible for giving names to birds. And yesterday they announced they're going to rename any bird that's named after a person because a lot of the historical figures uh, some of the birds are named after turn out to be racist and they don't want any, uh, like, Pelicanes flying around. So, <laughs> which, by the way, feels like a weird thing to announce. It feels like something they could have done and no, never told anyone about and no one would have ever known or cared. The movement was supported by some uh, progressive birding groups, and these are real birding groups. The Feminist Bird Club, the Philly Queer Birders, and the Anti-Racist Collective of Avid Birders. Who knew there was an anti-racist collective of avid birders? How has Fox News not done a month about this? Another group responsible for this is uh, called Bird Names for Birds, which is uh, whoever came up with that name should win some kind of an award trophy for awards. 
And that was Jimmy Kimmel Live, talking about the movement to stop naming birds after people. You can listen to the entire monologue online. To me, it was kind of funny, and it did show a widespread reaction to the idea of renaming birds. But there's a deeper way to look at this. And for that, we're going to hear from Boulder naturalist Steve Jones. Steve Jones is a Boulder, Colorado environmental consultant and breeding bird ecologist. He's been interviewed by the New York Times about ecology. He's won awards for his ornithology, and he's the author of several books on birds and nature. He leads teen naturalist groups here in Boulder. He's been a president of the Boulder County Nature Association and Boulder County Audubon. Welcome to the studio, Steve. Thanks. What kind of things would you like to say about this move to rename birds at a time where most people don't see the point, if Jimmy Kimmel's right. Certainly that isn't true of my friends and fellow naturalists. Uh, I've led field trips for 50 years, and I've had people who come on my trips and say, can we just watch the birds and not name them? They say that naming them reduces them somehow, and there are actually some people who prefer not to give any name to any bird. And no one actually officially names birds. It's by agreement. People get together and they say, oh, that one over there with the red head, maybe we could just call that one a red-headed woodpecker. But even the American Ornithological Society doesn't have the authority to name birds. They're a group where various people who are interested in birds have joined together and said, let's see if we can standardize some of this so we can talk to one another about birds. You know, Steve, bird watching is one of the most popular sports around the world. And perhaps the names are just a way to get it so that people can look them up in books and see what their range is, what they like to eat, what are the details of how they look. Is that one of the reasons to name birds? I think so. It's so we can talk to one another. And in various parts of the world, the names aren't really standardized much at all. And you think about plants, we do not have standard common names for plants, even in the United States. We have botanical groups that have standardized the scientific names to an extent, but people disagree about those as well. So birds are kind of unique in this way, mammals too, in that we tend to use the same names, at least all over North America, to describe the same birds. And of course, that's very useful. You can communicate with people. What we're talking about here, though, is how can we describe birds in a way that dignifies birds? instead of diminishes them. That's an interesting point, Steve, because we've gone together for many years to record the Nature Almanac feature on KGNU about what's happening in the natural world. For years, I've heard you have conversations with your colleagues about how you'd rather not see birds named for the people who shot them and were the first person to get them as a stuffed animal into a museum. Well, that's part of it. In Boulder Rights of Nature, which is one of the organizations I'm involved with, we believe that all individual species have dignity and they have the right to thrive and flourish. And we would think of how would I like to be named? I certainly don't want to be named after someone who shot my sister, for example. But it's also the possessiveness. There's a bird here in Boulder County that most everyone has seen, which is called Cooper's Hawk. And one of our experts said, well, why don't we just change it to Cooper Hawk? Then it won't be possessive anymore. But mm -hmm. Cooper has nothing to do with the ethos of that hawk. So Cooper's Hawk was named by somebody named Cooper. Actually, it was named after Cooper by someone who respected Cooper, who was a well-known naturalist. Look so, how complicated this is. But, but anyway, I'd like to be able to name the name in such a way that it evokes 
who that bird is and what it does. And so the term we're using for that bird is cackling woodland hawk. It has a beautiful, very strident cackling call, which is unusual for a hawk. It sounds like a woodpecker. And it isn't a deep forest hawk, and it isn't a prairie hawk. It likes open woodlands. So that name describes who it is to an extent. We can probably do better, but that's what we've been using. You've been using the name cackling woodland hawk. So they're a medium-sized hawk, and they hang out around bird feeders in town because they like to eat songbirds. So if you have a bird feeder, you probably have a cooper's hawk nearby. We have another bird in Boulder County, bird watchers, call Lewis's woodpecker. And people say, well, Merriweather Lewis was one of my heroes. He, the Lewis and Clark expedition. He was a gentle man. He was visionary. He worked for rights for people as well as animals. Yes, I love Merriweather Lewis. But it still wasn't his woodpecker. That woodpecker is its own person. And to say it was Lewis's woodpecker is just diminishing it. What does this Lewis's woodpecker look like? I've got it on here. Our proposed name is on my list. It's a medium-sized woodpecker about the size of a flicker. It has a burgundy-colored head. It lives mostly in forests. We have two suggestions, burgundy-breasted woodpecker or green-backed woodpecker. Many of us are using those names already. Now, this process is going to involve all the linguistic groups in North America. Now, before we get to how many groups need to be checked with to see what to name these birds, let's talk about one thing that has been mentioned in some of the write-ups about the move to rename birds. Some of these birds have been named after people who shot them who were racist. Or they were even collected by slaves, and that's what Audubon did. He did most of his collecting right around the time of the Civil War, or before it. He had captive slaves who were collecting birds for him. And Audubon, who is a famous man and did a lot of good work, also loved to shoot birds and stuff them. And he, if he saw a new species and he didn't have a specimen of that species, he would shoot 150 of them to make sure he got the right specimen. So it was just such a different attitude toward the natural world. And we've changed. We're much better than that. Are you one of the people, Steve Jones, who would like to see the name of the Audubon Society changed away from the name Audubon. Oh, yeah, of course. The Audubon that Society, is so controversial. The people in the hierarchy of the Audubon Society are afraid that they will, and you can fill in the words, lose revenue. They think the name is so important to them that if they change their name, people are going to forget who they are. That's pretty silly. Most of the people I know, yes, our chapter hasn't voted on this, but we're working on it. Here in Boulder, yeah. you've worked on it. Do you I'm, have any preferences for names for the Boulder I, Audubon Society? I'm not on the board now, but they have a lot of good ones. I had a suggestion, Ptarmigan Society. Anyway, to name it after one of our best-known birds. What does a ptarmigan look like, and how did it get its name? People ask me that question, ptarmigan, ptarmigan, right? I don't happen to know where ptarmigan comes from. It's a bird that lives in the tundra area above tree line. It's white in winter. It's speckled and mottled in summer. It's a hen-like bird. I don't know what the name ptarmigan means. There's just so many names out there. Was there a Mr. Ptarmigan who shot birds? No, I, it isn't that. It has something to do with some physical feature where they live, but I don't know. I guess I'm going to look it up as we're talking, but you feel like we're resilient enough as a culture to change the names of some things. 
You're rolling your eyes right now, Steve Johnson. 150 or more bird names have been changed in the past two decades in North America by the American Ornithological Society based on new information about those birds. Well, one of the first ones was a bird that was previously known as Old Squaw. I don't think anyone listening is going to say it's controversial to change the name of that bird from Old Squaw to another name. It's well known today that squaws, it's an insulting it's offensive. term. It's offensive. Yes. But others were changed because scientists found out other information about the bird, so they felt another name would be more appropriate. This is going on all the time. It's not a new process. Yes, they're talking about changing the American Ornithological Society names for 80 species, and that's a minority of the ones that have been changed in the last two decades. Okay, so you're telling me, Steve Jones, that this move to change 80 names of birds right now away from human names of the person who first identified it or who was to be respected by calling it that has actually been going on. It goes on all the time, changing bird names. It does, yeah. It goes on all the time. Now, the scientific names get changed as well, but they tend to be more stable, and they change when we find out things about their genetics and we realize we put them in the wrong family or associated them with the wrong other species. But the common names have always been very fluid. And again, if you go to Mexico and you see what I was referring to as a cackling woodland hawk in Mexico, your guide will use a name you've never heard before. And for somebody who's trying to look up what that bird looks like or where it may have come from, whether it's rare in an area or whether it's common, maybe a description would be better anyway. It would make it easier to identify it, but how do we use names as a species? We use names to honor children, to honor people. And I think our names for everything should honor those individuals. If you're naming a bird, why not do something to honor your connection to that bird? Not my connection. How about honoring that bird's connection to the earth? But to name birds after people who were slaveholders is doubly offensive. I mean, that's really where a lot of this recent push began with the Me Too movement and some other movements to eliminate racism and eliminate that kind of just blatant derogatory use of names in our society. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Our guest today is Steve Jones, noted boulder naturalist, here to talk about the world headline that was made last week when the America Ornithological Society announced that there were something around 80 bird names that are going to be changed away from the name of a person to something that more describes the bird. One thing that we talked about earlier, Steve, to show how complicated this process actually might be, is the bird ptarmigan. What does it mean? You looked it up. The word ptarmigan is from the Scottish Gaelic word ptarmican, an old name for willow ptarmigan in the northern British Isles. But they don't say what it means. They don't say what it means. We run into that all the time. I find names of things, and I really want to know where they come from. Yeah, I thought it had something to do with those highlands, but I don't know what. Ptarmigan, this is from my great scientific background of looking at Wikipedia. Ptarmigan is the common English name for the genus Lagopus Lagopus, in the grouse family of birds. The name is derived from the Scottish word for the bird, ptarmigan, meaning unknown. There you go. Meaning unknown. 
So lots of names. You'd like to get them closer to something so that even someone who doesn't know anything about birds, if they see one that they're intrigued by, it connects to... That would be nice, but I love the name ptarmigan. I think it's one of the most beautiful words I've ever heard. And when you see a ptarmigan, it just sticks with you. And I wouldn't want to change that name myself since it's been widely used. But during this process, it's not going to be a committee that's going to come up with suggested names. In the beginning, they will consult with anyone who wants to participate. How many linguistic groups are there in North America? Do you mean First Nations people who have different languages, or do you mean scholars in universities? I just mean cultures. I bet it's over 100 anyway. All these languages, people have used different terms or names to describe birds. And of course, the people who have been here for 15,000 years certainly know a lot more about those birds than those of us who've only been here for a few hundred years. So let me just, here I have Andy Cowell, who's a scholar at CU and has worked with the Arapaho and Cheyenne people. In the uh, Arapaho Dictionary, the uh, hawk that is still called a Swainson's hawk. That's named after Swainson. It's a hawk that winters in the Patagonia region of Argentina and summers up here in the shortgrass prairie. Oh my goodness, it flies tens of thousands of miles. Yeah, and so it's in the same habitat all year round. Uh, It's like we are a mirror image of the Patagonia prairie. So its scientific name is Buteo, which means large soaring hawk, Swainsoni, which is named after someone who maybe first collected it. And he was a famous naturalist. Well, one Arapaho name that Andy found, I can't say it in Arapaho, but it translates as hawk ghost, because it's so white when it's flying in the dark. So that may be a candidate name for this hawk, hawk ghost. We have a candidate that some of us have come up with, which some of you listening will have already thought of, which is pompous hawk. Pompous hawk. Because it lives in the pompous region of Argentina. You know, we romanticize the pompous with the gauchos and everything and don't realize we have the same ecosystem here. It's called shortgrass prairie, but people drive through it so they can get to the mountains. And that's my expertise is prairie. That's the area I love the most. So I think pompous hawk might be a good name, but there are many other things you could call it. Steve, speaking of the prairie, could it be on a darker side that the time period where cultures start to say, let's name these things in respect of these wild things, tends to be when we're destroying them. A simple example is if you go into a suburb where there's a new housing development. It's always named after something that was extirpated when they built the houses. Streets in those kinds of subdivisions are named things like Little Blue Stem Lane or Switchgrass Lane because those were the grasses that used to be there, but by building the buildings, they're not there anymore. Could it be that by focusing on naming the birds, are we doing more to protect them and respect them? Or is it more like turning them into elephants and dinosaurs that end up in children's books and talked about fondly as they have disappeared or are disappearing? No, I I think it's much simpler than that. If, If you meet someone and they have a strange name, you ask them, what would you like me to call you? And that's what we should be asking the birds. What should we call you? But they can't tell us. No, they can't tell us, but their behavior tells us a little about them, and they're so brilliant. The things they do are so amazing. And if we can name them after some of the wonderful things we see them doing, I think people will be more interested in them and respect them more.
many years have you been looking at a reason to change the names of these birds from people? Ever since I started bird watching when I was about 14 years old, it just seemed illogical to me that birds were named after people who shot them and collected them. It didn't make any sense to me. I'm really intrigued by these Arapaho names that Andy Cowell and his Arapaho friends have come up with. We have a wading bird called a snipe. And the reason it's called a snipe is because it makes a, a vocalization that sounds like snipe, snipe, snipe. Someone called it that years ago, and then they called it a winnowing snipe. Winnowing, I'm not sure where that comes from. It refers to clearing of hay fields, I know that, but it, it may also describe a sound that people have heard. And it turns out this wading bird called snipe, when it's defending its nesting territory, it goes up high in the air and it dives toward the ground. And as it dives, the wind rushes through its tail feathers and makes a sound that sort of sounds like, people were enchanted by that sound. One Arapaho term for this translates into English as yodeling one. And I like that very much. But of course, that's using a human behavior to describe a bird. So I like the old expression winnowing snipe. This bird is officially known as Wilson's snipe because there are several different species, and this is the one that Wilson, quote, discovered. So we could change that one pretty easily, I think. Mr. Wilson, whoever he was, is there another way to respect him besides uh, naming a bird after him? If someone would write a book about where all these names came from and then write biographies of the people who had birds named after them. I would love to have that so I can find out about some of these people. Steve, you have a different view of respecting nature than many people. And one example, you don't think that we should rank animals based on human intelligence tests. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't really believe in the idea of intelligence as a concept. There are a whole group of birds we refer to as urban adapted generalists or human associate species. Some examples are crows, ravens, maybe even some of the parrots. They're birds that have learned to live in close proximity to people. One reason they've done that is they found there's more to eat. There are other birds we call habitat specialists, and they tend not to do very well around people. I ran into a book that was fairly well-reviewed about crows. It was published about five years ago. And there was a sentence that said, unlike the dumb-witted banana quit, the crow has no trouble solving the maze. This writer, who was not a scientist, she was a journalist, she was basing her assessment of this bird, the crow, on how well it could run a human, you know, a maze that we set up for it. Well, isn't that a little bit like IQ tests? We know that IQ tests, which are not given so much anymore, they were when I was in elementary school, we know that they're biased in favor of people who've had European educations. They're biased in favor of wealthy people because they refer to all sorts of things that the wealthier people know more about than other people do. And it's the same with birds. To say a bird is or isn't intelligent, I mean, the things that some birds can do are amazing. How well would you do if we released you in Alaska and you had to fly home to Chile entirely on your own, navigating using the stars 
and the Earth's magnetic field. Could you handle that one? I don't think I could handle that IQ test, but I would respond as many scientists and people do and say, but that's just inborn in that bird. That's been programmed into it by its genetics. I don't know anything about that. And it may not be true. There's been some recent new articles about how even chickens might be self-aware because they pass the test of if you set up a mirror in a certain way, they look at the mirror and they give a lot of behaviors that indicate they know that isn't just a bird they're looking at. They know that they're looking at themselves. Well, I think every creature, at least once you get above one-celled animals, is self-aware. But it's been said about cats, dogs are smarter than cats because dogs recognize their reflection in the mirror and cats don't. I've had several cat companions over the years. And usually when they're one or two years old, they take a little bit of interest in that image in the mirror. But you know what? They're smarter than that. They figure out it's a mirror. It's not a cat. (laughs) You know, intelligence is just a dangerous word to use. Anyone who's a survivor and who's evolved over 10 million years is really smart. Let's just put it that way. They can do all sorts of things that I can't do. We should treat them as something sacred and beautiful and just try to name them in a way that honors that. Steve Jones is a Boulder naturalist. He's been speaking to us about the new move to name more birds by changing their name away from a person. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Shelley. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional sounds from Nature Recordings by Steve Jones. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.